Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Today we're talking Steven Spielberg's The BFG. That's right, the family movie about a big, friendly giant here on Anatomy Movie. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back, or if it's your first time, welcome to the show called Anatomy of a Movie, where we dissect movies. And as you can imagine, it's spoiler-filled, so we assume that you've seen the movie. Um, You can still watch this if you haven't seen the movie. Just know we're going to give away the movie. Um, Although... (laughs) I imagine most of you have already read the books, so you guys kind of know the story of the BFG. We have Dimitri Panos here today. Hello, movie fans. We have Stephanie Wenger. Hi. We have Marissa Serafini. Hello, everyone. And joining us from across the pond, someone we, we felt we should have a native to the story, a Brit, um, and also a fan herself, Caroline Faraday. Welcome. Hi. I love that you've brexited me to the sofa. Thank you. Well, you're across the, across the studio, across the pond. Keeping a barrier between us. That's, you know, we, we got to make the visual connection. Wait, I voted on what? <laughs> oh, that's See? Hey, that's what you get when you're... Is this two hours a day? It's going to feel like quite. five. <laughs> All right, let's start with overall impressions as we normally do, and then we'll get into the story and, and then the production, of course. So why don't we start all the way with you, Dimitri. Overall impressions. Overall impressions. You know, I found this to be a very charming tale, uh, and it was a welcome return for me to see Steven Spielberg going back to his more family-friendly fare. Um, You know, I think what he got wrong in, say, Hook, he really made up for in this movie. This is a... This is a quiet movie compared to something like like Hook, and this really was about relationship uh, between the big friendly giant and, and Sophie. Uh, Mark Rylance and his performance, his eyes specifically, make BFG uh, shine. And together with his companion, the wonderfully talented Ruby Barnhill, I believe her name is, yeah, Barnhill, they really made those dreams come true. Uh, I thought they were fantastic together. I do believe that the movie ran a little bit long for me in the middle, but in all honesty, I have no idea where they could have tightened a lot of it, any of it up, Um, although I was just wishing that they had gotten to Buckingham Palace uh, sooner, because that to me, like once, once BFG gets to Buckingham Palace, that's when the charm and heart really uh, come on strong, and that's where the movie really hitched and, 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 and just got tight for me. And really, I, that's where I love that movie the most, making those relationships and seeing BFG in the quote-unquote real world. Um, you know, I think it's a summer movie whose superpower is charm and heart and dare to dream big. And I really appreciated that. So, Excellent. there you go. Yeah. Stephanie? I thought it was a really sweet movie as well. Um, great for families. I agree about the runtime. It was a little long for me in the middle. I loved the book as a child, so it does have a kind of have a soft spot for the story. And I agree that Steven Spielberg uh, did a great job kind of bringing this to life. I think it was in production for a long time, or excuse me, in development for a long time. And I, I they really did a great job. It was what you expect when you go see a summer blockbuster. Yeah, I mean, I thought this was a very cute, family-loving movie, and uh, what I liked was the dynamic between BFG and Sophie, um, because I, I thought they really helped empower each other and in certain ways, and they really helped build their characters, um, and they brought the best out of each other, and sometimes the worst. And I, I thought that was 
really realistic and easily able to cling on to emotionally to get attached to this film. Visually, it was great. Um, runtime for a kids movie, it's it's a little too long, and I don't want to keep re- rehashing that fact. But it's Steven Spielberg, so you're gonna get a long movie, and he doesn't know how to make a movie less than two and a half hours long. <laughs> but I, I feel for kids movies, you know, kids attention span nowadays it's no more than five minutes so to have a solid two-hour film for a very simple story plot uh it really kind of took took me out of it a little bit because i was like okay when is this over and and it's a spielberg moment you don't want it to end but there are moments of like can we move on but overall it was a very fun film excellent caroline well, I loved the book, like, uh, to an obsessive level. Like, I always loved <laughs> Roald Dahl books. Like, because they were... I remember as a kid them being so different that they were kind of grisly and dark and, and like, kind of wrong. And then since then, other kind of quite dark children's books have come along. Harry Potter's pretty dark, you know, kind of young people's literature got got kind of grew. And so it was interesting revisiting that as an adult and thinking, ah, times have changed, and this feels like a very innocent sweet film of a very innocent sweet time that sometimes I was like wow we're actually watching a film about a relationship between an orphan girl who's plucked from her bed by an old strange man and all trying to be okay with that not like that relationship and there is like a lack of innocence that I think did exist because I'm only 21 like 21 years ago uh, when I first <laughs> first could read um, but I mean generally I loved it I loved the animation I thought the performances were adorable Sophie was different to how I thought of her you know that it's actually Sophie Dahl the, yeah. the supermodel right. like it's actually her as a kid with the geeky glasses mm-hmm. and so she was slightly less geeky and a little more cocksure than I kind of always pictured her but maybe that's because I was awkward and geeky and you just imagine yourself in that situation when you're a kid but I mean it's super charming super sweet I as an adult to watch a children's movie I love it when they put a few jokes for the adults in and I wish they'd been there but I mean it's just an adorable little bit of nostalgia and niceness and a a lovely family movie yeah I I, I agree 100% and I like some of the differentiations between the book and the movie Uh, the fact of that he had another child that was part of this and and uh that sort of was a pain in his life i I like that addition for it because then it kind of gave a little bit of backstory and something for sophie to figure out and i think you know it's strongest when it's um when they're talking i mean a lot of a lot of his books can in a way be plays like do you guys remember the witches yeah that movie i mean that that basically was like four scenes each scene was like 20 minutes right. and it was just exposition, but it was still so much fun. And, and um, so it reminded me kind of similar to, to that, um, where you have these little French scenes, as they call them. You know, you break, even though they're long scenes, you break it up in terms of you're in this portion and now you're talking about this and so forth. Um, so I agree. Uh, I think, you know, if you had to press me, I could tell you exactly what to cut <laughs> to get it down to 90 mm-hmm. minutes. But apart from that, you, you know what? The, the kids in my audience, they were laughing throughout. So, um, you know, they didn't seem to mind. Yeah, same here. The, the, yeah, the kids were really eating it up. And, you know, it's interesting to your point when you when you were talking about Roald Dahl about there was always a darkness to his stories. <clears throat> that was one of the things that, that Spielberg was gravitated to. and And especially... Uh, in his 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 career, 
this was the first time where he actually directed for Disney, and he said, you know, part of the reason I took this is because Disney is steeped, like their earlier stories, whether it be Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, they're rooted in darkness, like there is true evil. Snow White, that evil queen wants to cut out her heart, and you know, and that's yeah, an animated, that's dark. And that's what he gravitated towards this story. But he also, you know, the main part is I want to create this as a relationship. And even Melissa Matheson, uh, um, you know, that's what when she was reading the book and was hired to adapt, she said, you know, I had to focus on building a, a, a kind relationship between BFG and this little girl, Sophie. So those things, I think, all resonated. Yeah, later on down the line, I, because I was thinking, where do you sort of trim this movie down? Like, we need the big, awful, evil giants. We need the dream tree. You know, that there was just a lot. But again, you know, its charm was all, all there. It was uh, in subtle Spielberg form. This was not a bombastic family movie at all. Like, no. you know. <clears throat> um, the irony, too, uh, because, as Stephanie mentioned, this has been in development for so long. Robin Williams was originally actually supposed to be the BFG at one mm-hmm. point or another. So it's interesting, kind of the history. Um, so let's let's talk about the book and then kind of how Melissa... Um, by the way, the, you know, we'll, and we'll talk development, too. I mean, almost 25 years in development <laughs> with this wow. movie. That's... There's other movies that have been development for quite a long time, but I think this one is the longest one that I remember talking about. Yeah, when I saw that in the research, it was it's crazy to think that this movie has been in development for most of my life. Yeah, I mean, the, mm-hmm. fir- the first one came out in '89 with the animated um, version, which I don't I don't remember seeing. Did you see it? The the, the British directed TV movie. Yeah. I never saw it, but I, I when they were started to trail this movie, I thought. I can't believe this movie's never been done before because it's just such a tale ripe for telling that I, I couldn't believe that it had taken that amount of time and hadn't been sort of, you know, bitten into before properly. Yeah, and you know what? The one that I'm also interested in seeing is uh, is Danny the Champion of the World, which that what, mm-hmm. this whole story was kind of an offshoot from the, a story within that novel. So um, I'd be curious to see kind of a tie-in into that be interesting but yeah. and and also part of the development in the writing too why it also took such a long time is that the writing the script itself went through several different processes and when a lot of different scripts were made off of their you know their own edits and whatnot so there were several different versions yeah yeah and you know so let's let's talk about melissa i mean she has a wealth of you know credits to her name and, and in fact has worked with um spielberg she um she wrote et which many are kind of comparing steve uh, his you know et to this because it's much similar in the sense that it's a child and and um a connection in terms of you know somebody else some you know something otherworldly yeah, yeah and it's, I mean, it's I, bittersweet bookend too because uh, Melissa Matheson, who wrote E.T., and, mm-hmm. and, and that's when they first paired. Uh, she was on set, and, and again, she wrote something that was not an adaptation. Um, and she wrote perhaps one of the greatest family, like, just, well, not even family. I mean, E.T. to me is, it just covers everything. Like, when you say all quadrants, E.T. is an all quadrant movie and has done what. No other movies of its ilk was ever able to do, and nobody ever thought so. And Melissa Matheson came to prominence from that, and he hadn't worked with her, and and 
30 years or so since E.T. had come out, and they were paired again, and the bittersweet side is that she, she passed away, but she was so much a part of the heart and soul of adapting this um, and focusing on what, you know, she wanted, you know, bringing her in and her talents. I mean, obviously Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy, they knew what her talents were in writing. When you are writing otherworldly and you're writing of a creature who could be scary but yet needed to be tender and bring that life to a child, Melissa Matheson's gifts come through. And I think really, they really did, like without having read the book, I think paring it down and focusing on those two and making it a, you know, sort of kind of a relationship that grows because she was kidnapped. She was kidnapped by a, a human. From her bed, from by her a giant bed, hand, a giant man. For it's creepy. All she, and all she did was see him. That's it. Right? <laughs> for no other, during her witching hour. And, um, you know, it goes, hey, you got to let me go. Let me go. I don't care. I'm not going to tell. Let me go. And so it goes from combative to this heartwarming thing. And Melissa, I believe, is a screenwriter. This is, to me, one of my, you know, it's not as good as E.T., but probably one of, I, I liked it better than Indian in the Cupboard, uh, uh, let's say. That's a great movie, too. Which though. she also wrote. Um, but I uh, mean, yeah, I, I can see the comparison between <clears throat> this and E.T. also because I feel like a lot of the emotional beats are the same because you, if you think about it, you have a whole meeting of an unknown creature and then having fun, getting to know each other, having, you know, these fun situations go on and, like, help and, like, that kind of moves the story along. And then there's a big thing at the end. So and I feel like the emotional beats are the same. And that you still reach that conclusion that they both belong in their own worlds at the end. Mm -hmm. Like, that that's like, yeah, we've got a connection, but also I can't fit where you fit and, and it, vice versa. And, like, that's... That's quite an interesting lesson to teach a child, I think, of like that like we're all different, but that doesn't mean that you all have to exactly fit. Yeah. It's quite I agree with you. It's it's well E. T. specifically. Mm. I mean Elliot has an arc as well as E. T. And Spielberg has always said, he goes, They'll I will never do a sequel to E. T. And they've bandied about a ton of scripts, but there was just nothing that could recapture that. Just like the ending of this we still see BFG in his big giant land. You know, E.T. goes off to wherever. But the impression that each one has left on the other, they each have learned from whether it's humanity or whether you're an alien or a big friendly giant. You know, and but keeping to Dahl's vision, too, Melissa Matheson took great care in keeping his language and using, you know, she, she tried to use his dialogue as verbatim as much as possible, and they didn't want to tamper with that tone, which, again, is smart. It makes the movie very English. It, it, it does make the movie, I think, very British, which is fine, which may have, and we can talk about box office later, which may but, have had an effect. But going back to the I thought um, the point, though, was very much on the, unlike with E.T., you know, there's, you, you have that very emotional connection. This is uh, very much on the nose, and I don't know, because it's more of a kid's movie, obviously, E.T., to me, is a lot darker. Um, you know, where they spell out, like, I knew I could just say whatever, and then the BFG heard it because he hears all mm -hmm. the secret whisperings of the world, as she would say. Uh, so I thought, you know, by hitting it on the point, uh, on the nose, I think for kids, it, it got a little bit more. I actually was surprised because I, I do remember the book, and I thought, f I thought in the movie they might change it up a little bit. Maybe she could have lived with him. And, and when Rebecca Hall came into the picture, I was like, okay, maybe I could see it. But I'll tell you what I did miss. I missed that she used to sit in his ear. 
Yeah. And that being the thing, like he used to swivel his ear, didn't he? And then she'd sit in his ear. And in this, she sort of sat on his, his shoulder. shoulder. And I was like... <laughs> I wonder if it's like, it takes feel. it over the line. If it, like having it, I remember that from the book as well. But if it's like in his ear, is that like creepy on screen? Like somehow reading that, I think is a very different thing than actually seeing it. I don't know. Like, it probably wouldn't translate that well visually. Like you could do it in your head, but yeah, yeah I'm so. not sure how it would work. Yeah. I'm just thinking that might have been more difficult production wise. Yeah. Yeah. just to actually yeah. executing how to film that might have been harder for them. I think so, yeah. But to your point too, Phil, and, and I, I I would like to believe that everybody would agree, I mean, how sweet is it? You know, she starts off her mornings, good morning, BFG, <laughs> and the way that this movie ended was going into the land of giants and just seeing BFG, and he just looks up and he smiles like because he hears, he hears the good morning, BFG. Like, their connection is never lost. And you can, you can make, in a sense, that parallel to E.T., where you know that Elliot and E.T.'s connection, their heart connection, is never going to be lost. We don't see E.T. in his planet, nor do we ever We never have the sequel to, outside of if you've ever gone in the E.T. ride at Universal. Yeah. But you know that there's a connection. This movie was able to fully, you know, encapture that. I really love the, good morning, BFG, as she goes out the window, and you know that BFG can hear her. He's still there. That, was very, that had a lot of heart and warmth to me. Then, you know, now he's able to fulfill his life's dream in a way, which is to do dreams, right. you know? And I, I think, like, that that's that in itself, um, I thought, you know, was a great message. And obviously what, 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 for me, I've always gravitated towards is this whole notion of, like, dream catching and dream throwing. Yeah, it's, again, it's such a great notion for children because, you know, you have bad dreams as a kid. What a great thing to actually be able to be able to say the next one just a BFG blowing it in your ear you know like it's actually quite reassuring and I, I, I don't know like maybe that's how maybe Sophie had Sophie Dahl I mean actually had bad dreams and, and granddad just went here's a story for you you know sitting on the end of the bed and it made her feel a little bit better about having the odd bad dream I did have the weirdest dream after watching this film I was like maybe it's true <laughs> maybe he did that maybe he got it from dreamland maybe. I did like the idea of the dream blowing and whatnot, because I think that also just relates to the kids that, yes, we can have bad dreams, but also good dreams come from positive places. And, like, uh, you know, if you do something good, you might get a good dream and whatnot. So, like, I like that idea because it kind of shows kids that not everything in the world is bad. Mm -hmm. It was also that the dreams were fleeting. Like, they were all Mm -hmm. very fast. That was, like, something I noticed, that it wasn't, like, going to stay in your life. And I thought for young kids, that's a really important thing. Like, a nightmare doesn't stick around. It's a moment in time, and then you move on. Yeah. 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 Unless Sophie is sitting on your window sill. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. I know the Queen took that in her stride remarkably well. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's talk about Dreamland, uh, because I thought, you know, visually to be able to capture that in terms of in his home and having them in the jars and then also there with the tree and, you know, kind of the the reversal where they go in the lake. um, I thought they captured that really well. Again, it's been years for me since I've read the book. But, you know, it's it's a whole other thing to actually put yeah. it to screen, even if, however, he can, as best as he can, describe it. I thought that was the most breathtaking scene, really, in it, when he jumps through the lake and she bravely goes, all right, I'll follow him where he's going. And then this magical, oh, it was just, that was so magical. I thought it was really wondrous, yeah. I yeah, agree. I thought it was visually stunning. Yeah. The, the colors were just 
fantastic to look for. I did think this scene ran long. I think this is where they could have trimmed it a bit because you saw her running around everywhere on screen just trying to chase one little fizzy dream. I'm like, we could have got that concept in maybe 20 seconds. Um, but it was, it, it was fun because how they established that there were some dreams that are just in isolated and cater to one person. Mm-hmm. And it really shows that it's important to everyone, but everyone's different and they have their own dreams because it's ref- a reflection of their life. And I like that. Yeah, and, and to me, the the big friendly giant is is not too unlike Willy Wonka. Wonka, whereas they are both the makers of dreams and dealing with children, and that's what he does. That's what the big friendly giant does as well. I mean, he's the maker of dreams. He will. It's a recipe. He puts it into that that that. I don't know what you call it. The the wand and and. You know, a little a little dash of this, a little dash of this, and this is what I'm going to make, and this is how it's going to be. It was all like the plotting of a dream. It's the writing of a story. And, you know, again, that was a big thing Willy Wonka said, the maker yeah. of dreams. You know, here we are. And um, I love those parallels, too. Uh, I mean, there's loads with the language as yeah. well, aren't well, there? It's strong diddly issues for crying out loud. All of the crazy, <laughs> wacky language and the fizz bubbler right. and the... Di- that's... That's very, very much yeah. a parallel with Willy Wonka. Yeah. Well, what, what, what I like is that it's it's a, in a way a reversal, right? Because Willy Wonka, he's he's known, <clears> right? <throat> that people buy his chocolates and whatnot. Sure. Uh, and it's you know obviously daytime, right? It's supposed to be enjoyed in sunshine and whatnot. <laughs> this, you know, he's very secretive. I, I also liked how they did handle him at the beginning. You know, hiding and whatnot. I thought that was a very it's clever. Great scene. And it wasn't just they didn't like try to just fool you once of like, okay, we'll show you once how he did, and then the rest is to your imagination. Like he kept going, having to hide after you know multiple scenarios, and they just kept pulling it off really well. Yeah. I enjoyed that. Agreed. So, a hundred percent. Speaking of, I want to go back to one of the early, you know, in terms of preserving um, the tone, right? The fact that she visited, uh, Melissa visited his home in England numerous occasions, and the fact that she was even given access to that, um, I thought was fantastic. Have you ever, since you're, have you ever been? I was just thinking that, like, I wish I had. No, I would really like to have done that. I've done some of the other ones in in the UK, like the the kind of classics, but no, I've not been to Roald Dahl's home. I might do it my next trip back. Yeah. But you're right, like that 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 it did feel kind of English in terms of like these. The quirky language and the the use of malapropisms and and that kind of joke playing out throughout the whole whole time. Yeah, especially in Buckingham Palace. Buckingham, we're, we're Buckingham. Bu- Buckingham, Buckingham, Buckingham Palace. <laughs> Buckingham. That's why you're not invited. <laughs> Buckingham well, see, Palace, Leicester I'm, Square. I'm from New England. We call it Buckingham. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so no, in, in Buckingham Palace. Buckingham Palace. Uh, you know, and you can tell there was more of the reserved, and, and especially like the woman who played the queen was was just she was fantastic. Yeah, she's great. And and again, she's like, like a classic TV I actress in the right. UK as well. Like I was like, oh, I've seen her in everything. And then Rafe Spall, of course, Rafe who Spall. was um, uh, Mr. Tibbs. I thought he was a lovely turn. His accent kept moving. Yeah. He seemed to start with an American accent and then go really, really English. <laughs> I was like. What are you doing right now? <laughs> like, I love Rave Spool, but what was happening? <laughs> but I love the properness. I mean, even when <laughs> they're feeding the big friendly giant, you know, I love the properness and all it took was a little bit of silliness. And even with the yeah. silliness, they 
It was charming that the, the watering can for the, the coffee or things great. like that. Just beautiful quirks and, and yeah, and, were. yeah. It's great imagination. Yeah. It was definitely one of my favorite parts of the movie, and just the comparison between the way he's lived his life and the way mm. that the queen lives. It was just really funny, and the way they did it, and exactly all of that with the watering can and. Everything was hilarious. Pinky up. Yeah. All his eggs. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and, it, and it, was re- it was a reversal because, you know, for so long in the movie, he was talking about his world. This was, okay, you know, as she kept, you know, you mentioned the pinking. Yeah, she's showing him how to behave. And much like an adult, you know, watching a child just being like, oh, what are you doing? Cause, right. And you know the fart joke is coming. Right. Yeah. And she's like, please don't, please no, don't. What is this? The bubbles are going down. Yeah. But I thought, I, I will say, they were very respectful of the queen because mm-hmm. everyone else they showed. Hers they, they showed, but it was very subdued. Under the table, yeah. literally. Yeah. Yeah. So, with a little rise. <laughs> <laughs> the dogs are great. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, for me, I was totally charmed by this image of the queen being somebody who just wanders around Buckingham Palace with, like, dogs running in front of her. Right. Like, I was like, yeah, that's totally how it is, and, yeah. And, and, and to be honest, this type of humor in kids, it's particularly animated right? movies, it's becoming a lot more uh, prevalent throughout because mm. uh, even this, um, the movie that opens up, uh, I believe, this weekend... Secret uh, Life of Pets. Secret Life of Pets. Uh, there's a scene where uh, uh, Little Bunny Rabbit poops and he's like oh nobody saw that uh i just saw a trailer for this movie the trolls uh where where where, where a troll yeah yeah farts farts are yeah, cupcakes fart it's poop jokes are endless but, the, funny, but they're becoming they? more and like it just seems to be if you want to make kids laugh throw it in the trailer like this will make you laugh whether it's appropriate or not and listen i'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a 12 year old at heart, so a good fart joke, you know, will, could go a long way with me, you know. But I was brought up on Blazing Saddles as a fart joke. This movie, I think, used it. Number one, it was a setup. Like we got set up with with yeah. this particular scene early on, so it doesn't come out of nowhere that this happens. It wasn't like completely raunchy when it happens. It really was used to... Uh, yeah, the anticipation yes. that it's going to happen is almost funnier than when it does. Because right. you're yeah. like, oh, oh no. you know what's coming. And you're almost there with Sophie, aren't you? Going, oh, yeah. he's totally going to fart in front of the Queen. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> it was, and what do they call it? Fizzy Pops. Yeah. <laughs> Pulpy poppers and fizzy pops. And- so that's what I mean. That innocence of language. It feels like time has moved on since that. But I mean, it's really charming. But like that innocent language of like, you know, fizzy poppers and whiz bangs. Like you might have said at the time it was written. Now time feels like it's moved on a little bit. So I think it was really hard to balance that feeling of the moment yeah. and not dated. But maybe that maybe that keeps it classic and keeps it like a classic tale. I, I, th- I thought it was. And, and, and one of the things that also stood out to me was, you know, while it's fun having that stuff, they also managed to flip it and have it be serious because he did say, I have trouble finding the right words. And when he's talking with the queen, he's having that moment of like, I don't want to mess this up. I need the right word. Yeah. Right. And, um, Your Majesty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. I, I did like the language too because you know the words fizzy pop and whatnot. And like that's not in our everyday you know language, and I, I liked how that kind of also just caters to the whole thing that he he can't speak properly. He wasn't really properly educated and whatnot. Right. And what what was the language they call it? Like Google gobble. 
gobbledygook. Yeah, I don't know. Something. Um, the, you know, the, the way he spoke his own specific language. And right. I, I think it really worked. So we can allow that. These There are just fun, crazy words that even kids would just enjoy saying over and over again. Right. And, like, you know, wouldn't you... Instead of who farted, who fizzy popped. Yeah. Like, right. that's fun, You know? I mean... So, but but it does make and it does create that world too, and and it differentiates itself from say the real world when you are using that made up sounds. I mean, because they are sounds, but their sounds when put together are very funny. And I think when I was watching it, that's what the kids were laughing at the most. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot, and most of it's quite onomatopoeic and and lovely, exactly. and 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 <clears throat> just you know you know exactly what's going on, and then there's these like. Bonkers, like I say, like little malaprops, and then like right. just yeah, it's charming. Very, absolutely. Was it called Pigeon Giant? Did you find it? Uh, it's somewhere. It's so somewhere. speaking of which, you can download the rundown in our description, so you can you can get all the notes. Um, it's somewhere in here. Um, our rundown today is I think seventeen pages, so it's somewhere <laughs> deep in there. Um, I can't find it right off it's the like bat. Like Bumble Gooker. It's a it's a weird word. <laughs> Um, but so let's talk about the BFG, right? Mark uh, Rylance um, and, and kind of how he got cast, and you know, and doing this motion capture, um, acting alongside uh, his counterpart uh, and whatnot. So he was Spielberg was apparently blown away with him, um, his performance on stage of Twelfth Night, and that's how he kind of came into into this whole notion. Yeah, and I think the great thing about Twelfth Night, there, there's a lot of characters that are serious, but yet funny situations always go on in that story. And I think that's kind of what the BFG is like. It's a very serious overall story going through funny situations. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we know that Mark Rylance and Steven Spielberg just worked on Bridge of Spies. Spies. So, you know, they do have a good working relationship. I, I think the BFG was really fun to watch because... The way that they established him at the beginning, we weren't sure if we were supposed to be afraid of him or if, you know, he was trustworthy and whatnot. And then as we got to know him, he's like, okay, he is actually friendly. He tends the titular name. And then compared to the other giants, he's like, yes, he's our protagonist. He's the giant we're supposed to root for. And I think Mark Rylance's performance was like, especially with motion capture and how they just processed it and whatnot. You really, I really connected emotionally to him like the the you can tell that he was lonely and he didn't like the people he had to be stuck with and the foods he was eating you know, like he wasn't happy and when Sophie came into his life you definitely saw a change in him that he was a happy person right. yeah. um, going through all this I and, felt sympathetic towards him uh, especially in the middle of the film I, I think at the beginning I had trouble getting over even though I was familiar with the story this idea of taking a child still was like ooh I don't know that that's okay and then when you see that he really does want to be her friend and it's not coming from any place of evil then you can kind of get on board with him and he did a great job of kind of allowing that to happen yeah I agree with you and I think just one more added element to this is that we see him as a giant, but when we the reality of his world is, he's the odd man out. He's the odd duck of the crew. He's not considered a giant. He's the runt of the litter, and that makes him different in his world, much as Sophie might feel out of sorts in her real world. That's where, to me, the movie really connected, because Sophie sees, you're a giant. He's like, 
no, not really. He goes, take a look. He goes, these are giants. He yeah. goes, I'm not. And he <clears throat> sees himself at, like in this place as, I get picked on. I'm different. I, 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 I do different things. I, I catch dreams. I make dreams. And I try to cook. These, they're just evil. They just want to snatch kids to eat them. And you can see, what I go back to the whole notion, you could see why he was cold at the beginning right. to to her. Because you could say, oh, he, he could have been a lot nicer. Well, he was still protected and scared from the last time that he had a person there. Um, you know, the boy in the red um, vest. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so when you kind of get that backstory, which is new, uh, it, it really brings something to him. And by the way, the language is called uh Gobble funk, and you can get all that language <laughs> on the website. Ooh, Not our website, am... Roll Doll's website. I, I, I mean, Mark Rylance's story for me is incredible. Really, to be this older theatre actor who um, really is the master of the kind of understated, subtle performance. You look at him in Bridge of Spies; oh. like that's a gentle, understated. You're never really sure. You know, it's a very, very soft performance. Um, And then when I heard that he was going to play the BFG at first, I thought, that was an odd choice. He's a theatre actor. I mean, this is a guy who couldn't been more... You know, this time last year, did we really know Mark Rylance's name? And now he is an Oscar winner. He's a dark horse. (laughs) And the lead man in in, in the BFG. I mean, what a year to have at this point in his acting career. Sure. Like, he's a phenomenal actor, but he could easily have just been a phenomenal theatre actor for the rest of his life. Yeah. And suddenly, it's like, the it must be the most insane to But he's just a dedicated actor. I remember trying to get an interview with him um, for the BBC when I was doing the Oscars, and two two reasons that that didn't happen. One, he was he didn't even go to... I think the SAGs. He did come to the Oscars. But he didn't go to the SAGs because he was doing theatre in Boston. Like, he wasn't just, you know, walking the trail like they do and kind of shaking hands and trying to win. That's what they said about him during that entire campaign. And and one of the biggest surprises is that he was never a person that really actively campaigned. No, he was doing theatre in Boston. And, you know, which was interesting. But if you look at his performance in Bridge of Spies, you, you said it, it was very understated. He, you know, and again, he, he acted with his voice, his eyes. He was, you garnered sympathy with this man as that movie yeah. went on. And he uses the same, that same, almost a similar cadence in this movie, where he's yeah. very understated. Yeah. But it was his eyes, just like in Bridge yeah. of Spies, but it was his eyes that really sell. Because whether he was happy, sad, thinking, and then when you put it with his diction and the cadence of his voice... You had to sympathize with it. Like, he became more than just the animation that they yeah. that he brought to screen. Well, I think also Andy Serkis is probably cursing him right now because now there's two people who are a little quirky <laughs> that do motion capture. <laughs> and his wasn't completely motion capture either. Like, which is the other fascinating thing is that Spielberg didn't want to rely on just motion capture. He really wanted the performance and then animate... Unlike having the tennis balls and uh-huh. the blue suit, he literally had animators animate performance and capture things. They, he used a virtual camera. What's a virtual camera like? It's a camera that's there but not there. <laughs> um, but which I would love to see because apparently this is brand new technology yeah. that Spielberg was using to make this movie. So to me, letting them act without the suits and 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 and. 
uh, getting people from Cirque du Soleil to come in to say to help them up with movement, movement yeah. and the weights and Mark Rylance was just basically they actually they performed and then it was animated and then certain things were motion captured. I just found the whole process of this, mm. but seeing his face, it was the BFG's face that really to me was like yeah. that's where you got all of the heart and the charm and the pain. Uh, he he was just fantastic in this role. Yeah. Oh, I agree completely. I was just going to say, in the research, you mentioned earlier that Robin Williams was going to take on this part before his death, and I think that that would be such a different movie. Not better or worse, just a completely different, like, their tones are so different that I I tried to imagine what this movie would look like, and I think it would be a completely different film. Yeah, Mm -hmm. You know what I, I mean? One of the things I want to hunt, like, it's one thing in a movie like Purchase Spies to because you're, you're getting a close-up, right? When you see his eyes, you're getting a close-up. This, obviously, you're getting a close-up, but uh, just by the sheer nature of scale, you're getting his close-up, but for Sophie, it's the widest, widest shot you can possibly shoot. <laughs> and so, I, you know, th- there's that side of it, um, which I think is very fascinating that you have to be able to capture, and, and I thought they did a really good job with it. Yeah. Um, so, very fantastic. Anything to add, Marissa? You know, I, I think it was just great. Um you know, to Mark Rylance is for I think for right now is probably one of the better top choices for this because I can't really pick another actor right now to who could convey such a deep emotion, but you also feel for him yeah. and whatnot, and to have such a strong connection with the child as well. That's also hard to have like that trifecta, and I think Mark Rylance mm-hmm. had that. And it, to me too, it was very funny that. He didn't realize that, like, Spielberg asked him to read the script, but he's like, I had no idea he actually wanted me to be the BFG. <laughs> and after he read the script, he was uh, he was like, yeah, he found his inner BFG. But to me, that almost, maybe it's a sign of a great actor when they make it look so easy. Because for me, you know, you know, your point about Robin Williams is, I think Robin Williams would have been equally as good because there are roles that Robin Williams has done where... He's his eyes are extremely sympathetic, and he can play. Yeah, and he can play that. Sadly, you know whether he's if he were alive, whether or not they still would have gone to him. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Robin Williams has got the light and shade, hasn't he? But his energy. Well, I think you're talking about that. His energy is so different. Like, like Mark Rylance is even in real life. You know that thing of like the unexpected hero. Whereas I think. Robin Williams did project like a little bit. His energy was if, more forward. If you yeah. if you watch him though in some of his more dramatic yeah. roles, he's a very he can play yeah, sympathetic shade, very easy. Yeah. But Rylance, you know, now you know he played the role and I think he was fantastic. He owned the BFG. Yeah, that shyness yeah. when he's in the Garden of Buckingham yeah. Palace, for instance. <laughs> um, you know, like that shyness was just. Spot on for Rylance, I thought. Like, unassuming. Yeah, it makes that scene work. Um, Very much. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So let's talk about Sophie, the other half. Um, Young Ruby Barnhill. Uh, As you can imagine, they just auditioned so many people um, for this role. And, in fact, she had to audition uh, five rounds, um, you know, through all of this. But there she got, after a lengthy search, she got cast. I think fantastic job overall. Yeah, I think she did a great job. I've never seen her in anything, so 
to have this as one of your first major mm. roles and you know what a feat for her at such a young age i think she did great because i loved her character that she was so young but she didn't take crap from anybody she had know? spunk oh yeah she had a lot of spunk and yeah. like she wasn't intimidated by this humongous giant whatsoever and i like i like that to have someone who's also so innocent and young but to have a strength to her. Yeah, it's one of the strongest female roles I've seen in Hollywood for I a know. long time. Yeah. Ironically, like from she, such a young yeah. child. And I thought she did that well. And I hope her career just like skyrockets from here. Yeah, I hope. I always, again, this isn't a knock towards Spielberg, but for me it's always the, the, the for lack of better words, it's almost like the Spielberg curse with children. Mm-hmm. When you see what happened to Henry, Tom, like Henry Thomas's career after being in the biggest movie in the universe... Never really got that far. Drew Barrymore, it she was in movies after E.T., but never anything, and then she had her problems. It took many years before she became the Drew Barrymore of today, which is different from Drew Barrymore. What happened to uh, Joey Mazzello and, and the two kids in Jurassic Park? Yes, Joey Mazzello was, I believe, in the Spielberg-produced The Pacific. Uh, or, or It was either The Pacific or the other HBO um Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers. But again, like these, like they're talented, gifted kids that he seems to find really, really like he, he finds them young and gets the talent. I hope that, that Sophie can continue. I think uh, it really on. depends on kind of having that great family dynamic, keeping your feet on the ground. A friend of mine's son is, is uh, a friend of mine, Dominic, his son is the new Spider-Man, Tom Holland. And like they're such a nice family, really grounded. He's got four boys. One of them is Spider-Man. I went, uh, Dominic, you have a problem? You can never tell your son off ever again. He's Spider-Man. <laughs> what are you gonna do? And so, you know, you do hope that the that the fact, you know, and they've never told him what he's earned. They've never sort of, you know, got into that. Never really let him kind of have a, have an understanding that he's got this big movie career. He's just turned up, done his role, like really enjoyed it. And they've, you know, I think it is about protecting that exposure to go back to her performance and not just ruin her life for her. Um, I mean, obviously, young girl, doing great. What well, great experience. She was obviously phenomenal on set. I'd have a word with the dialect coach because she kept having this quite well-spoken, hello, really over-enunciated moment and then dropping into quite a heavy Cheshire accent. And, and like, it kept jarring for me. But that's probably my ears being quite particular on it's that. It's so interesting that you bring that up because being from Boston... If you screw up the Boston, nothing is worse than, than than an actor screwing up a Boston accent. So hearing that come from you, but she was on a television show, was she not? Uh, in, not not in, to my knowledge. I mean, quite possibly, but I've been here rather than oh, there, okay. so I could easily have missed that. Yeah. So yeah, and, and you know, she had there was six months of auditioning going on yeah. for her, and. Um, you know, so exciting! Imagine getting for, that for a nine-year-old girl, yeah. and, and of course, and and again, I think she nails that. She she gets the that that spunk, but again, I say too, it's a credit to Spielberg. Spielberg yeah. knows how to work with children. He mm. knows how to work with the young kids, just much like John Hughes knew how to work with children and teenagers. And teenagers. Once they went off to other projects, those kids were never as good as when they were. In a John Hughes movie, Spielberg was the same way. He was able to capture a performance or do something that wasn't, at that time, in that child's nature. Like, 
it, it, it's a famous story from E.T. with Drew Barrymore. Like, she had to, there was a scene where she really had to look scared and cry. And there was no way that they could really do that other than on set. They did something on set where she got scared and she cried. And they, bu- and they built all of this around a performance of, say, Drew Barrymore or Henry Thomas, who's fantastic. But Spielberg knows... He can get into a kid's heart and head and really pull out the best that that kid can do on film. And that's what makes a movie like BFG works. If her performance, forget Mark Rylance, okay, his performance is great. But if the little kid's annoying, right. you're done. Yeah. You're cooked. When I saw this with my fr- a friend of mine, she was saying that it reminded, Ruby reminds her of like girls that she grew up with. And I think that that's so important in a movie like this. It has to be someone that you feel like, familiar with in some way and by casting a somewhat unknown I think that that's the benefit is that you have somebody who could be in your class it's not oh I've seen her in 18 things before and you know and uh, she's like a movie star at 10 that's not as appealing I think in this kind of role yeah, you know, I mean, going, they also had chemistry, right? They're, you know, part of the technique was to make sure that Mark and Ruby spent as much time as possible getting to know each other, so much so that, you know, on set later they played table tennis and basketball and everything like that. So, you know, it, it, it always helps when you have that side of it, much like, you know, you talk about um, the Sandlot, right? Those kids, like, they literally had their own summer. So when you can kind of create that um, for, in this case, your two main leads... It ends up working out, and it's all captured on screen. Right. Yeah. So, um, let's talk about uh, let's talk about the Queen Penelope Wilton. Um, one of the things I found fascinating that every one of us um, that had email, you got you guys all found this the fact that when they recreated um, the interior, the ballroom, it just literally looked marvelous. Like it looked exactly the way it was pictured, and 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 whatnot. So, as we mentioned earlier, it was a nice blend of Yes, there was CGI at work, but at the same time, as much of it could be captured to um, for for the actors to play in that playground, if you will, they made it. They did, and I was just recently at Buckingham Palace. Uh, last where you year, learned how to say it. Where I learned, no, actually, that was here. <laughs> I, I was getting looks. I was getting the polite stare when I'd say, this Buckingham Palace is gorgeous, and they'd go, yes, sir. <laughs> but in any case, I was there. I was there in the summer uh, during the two weeks in which they allowed the commoners to go take a tour, and um, I just—it just was a matter of timing. And took this whole tour, and it was—it was great. And it was in this ballroom. It's beautiful. It's so—it's it's so beautiful. And what it overlooked in the garden. And watching this, it was just like. Did they actually allow them to film inside? And there was, I guess it was a mix. They, they, they were allowed on, but a lot of that was done in a stage, which makes more sense. But the ornateness that they got was just fantastic. Their attention to detail. And you've got that sense of the space as scale. well. And the, you know, and the kind of quirky... It could fit a giant. Yeah. Yeah, I love that it was grounded in the reality of, of what it looks like and, and how it is. 
I, yeah, I loved it visually, but I, I love the color scheme because it was warm and uh, orange and yellows and whatnot. And it just looked luxurious, like yeah. such a life right. the queen lives. And the fact that, you know, all that great food, I mean, she must be having some life. Right. Apparently um, the queen in real life <laughs> likes nothing more than sitting down in an evening with a bowl of soup on her knees and watching TV. And does Because you get, imagine if you have all those <laughs> <Right>. lavish <laughs> banquets all the time. You'd be like, oh, God, I don't want to... You know, you don't want to always do your makeup and get dressed up, do you? That's great to hear. She's like a woman after my own heart. That's, so. why, that's why I thought Sophie would actually leave, just because she. I didn't think it was in her nature to be that proper. Uh, you know, I thought for sure, like, with the BFG, there's just a sense of adventure, whereas this is just so prim and proper and with yeah. the finger out. Um, and, in fact, you know, Rebecca Hall, who eventually Mary, who becomes the mother of her in the movie, you know, uh, the reason... I don't know if this is why she got cast, but she is a huge lover of BFG and wanted to do the role as well. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's kind of how she got in, involved, if I had to guess. Yeah, and I think Rebecca Hall, she's just an amazing actress in and of herself as well. And even though she played a small role, it was great to have her there because she played a nurturing character that Sophie also needed. Because, I mean, she made a relationship with BFG, but I felt she needed another strong woman in her life to like help give her you know some sense of self and actually tell the audience that okay Sophie even though she's an orphan like she's eventually going to have a family right. so yeah hey, Rebecca Hall and Timothy Spall uh, you, this is uh, why no, I Rafe wanted Spall. Rafe Spall I'm sorry Timothy's he's another there you go yeah um, what I liked about I, I wish there was more of them that's why I sort of kind of wish we got to England a bit sooner because I wanted to know about their relationship and obviously they took a liking to our little Sophie, which not hard to do. But, I mean, were they... I mean, I got the... They're married. They're a couple. Which Rebecca... Like, I was trying to figure out what the relationship between those two characters were. Because I like them so much. And they seem to be really good together. That they would make a great family. Where they didn't... Even though they were working for the Queen, they didn't seem that they were as overly proper for the Queen outside of their work. And they, and to me, they, they seem that they would have been a good pair, a good match for parents for Sophie. That lovely moment where Rafe Spall leans forward and sort of, he's gone right. from being very hostile and hostile yeah. to the situation and just with one line, you know, just tips it of like that softness of like, I'm on your side, kid. You know, it's yeah. that. It's just lovely move Absolutely. over. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, re- really, really charming scene. Yeah. I love how he, you know, got the security out out to the front. Like his his one line <laughs> over the PA. It's like so calm, but right. yet like now get out there. Get out there. <laughs> it's right pretty now. great. <laughs> I think you know the other thing I also applaud this for is just the sense of space. You know, when you're dealing with these made up worlds where a giant country is and whatnot, and when they when they bring that out the map and the fact that it's not actually on the map you have to kind of go beyond it <laughs> I, I thought it was great because it would have been a, it would have been a cheat if they like actually brought out the globe and he's like oh it's actually like near the border of portugal or spain you know yeah the fact that it's just still hidden from the world right. i love my little homesick moment where he starts off and he's kind of i don't know in like a kind of darkish <laughs> area of london and it's all kind of cobbled streets and could be a few places and then gets out and j- runs up the country in like these giant and i was like home sweet home like, <laughs> oh, that's my land i love it was you know the actual kind of use of kind of using the uk right. was beautiful because it was 
like I say, quite grounded in the reality of yeah. how it looks, like the way that the pylons looked or the fields look, or you know, just lovely, lovely little details. Um, the little detail of, of the queen pouring her tea. I remember clocking this, and I was like, they better not put the milk in first. Queen doesn't have it like that. And then, <laughs> sure enough, the milk went in second. I was right. like, everything's okay. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Tiny details that were just spot on. Right. Yeah. yeah, the authenticity. Um, I, I liked the scale of you know seeing what what we would call you know the UK, but the giant country and just like how grand that was in land mm-hmm. that the giants are so big they're using grass as blankets and whatnot right. so it, it looked yeah. gorgeous though like a big yeah. countryside area they also never lost the scale throughout the movie sometimes on these kinds of movies you you would see sophie at some point kind of being too large like they really did try to make sure you realized her scope always amongst all these giants and i, I didn't feel like there was a moment where that was lost and every once in a while you do see in these movies, something where it's all off. Agreed, and they really took great time, attention, and detail to do that. They actually, they, they would build, they, they would build up to three sets of the same thing, so that scale-wise, it would fit Sophie, it would fit BFG, it would fit BFG's brothers. That's why when when the brothers are come lumbering into BFG's house, they literally do have to scrunch down to get inside because he is smaller. His house. It wasn't just using computer-generated imagery to make these. They actually had the sets. And what was most important to Spielberg is line of sight. It's like, I can't... It's If, the, if a relationship's going to work, people have to talk to one another and they have to be looking in their eyes. So they would have... They would build a couple of stories so that Rylance would be up and she could look at him, but they were on set. And it made it just much more efficient and easier for 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 um little Sophie to talk to her BFG and vice versa. And then sometimes if they weren't in the room, maybe Rylance would squat down to so he could talk to his brothers, but they always had that important line of sight to have real conversation. And I think that's another reason why you buy it in this movie is because their attention in building those vast sets um and making them to scale to the character. Um, which I thought was fantastic. I have one question. Okay. So, when Sophie, at the end, uh, says, Good morning, BFG, and she, and, they, and they're miles away from each other, right? Yeah. And he hears her. Most of the time, she's sitting right by his ear. Presumably, if his hearing is that good, it would nearly burst his eardrum, the level she was talking at. Because that would be super loud if they can hear each other when they're miles away. I need this resolved. She, the BFG just hears the spirit of everything. He doesn't actually hear. Stop it. See, well, I, I, <laughs> not well, I come up with that their connection ran a lot deeper than just conversational. So it wouldn't be like someone that. shouting in your ear at a disco. You know when someone comes up and it's really loud, they're like, how are you? And you're like, you're really close. You don't need to like shout from over there. Or like, if you're near my ear... Don't bust my eardrums out. He has special flaps that if you're next Stop to him, it. they'll come <laughs> he over. Did not. No, I just believe it. But I, I thought it was established that their connection was so deep that, yes, he could hear millions. It's, he it's could much hear like ants su- chattering, well, but, but, yet but she's on like, his shoulder. But it's much like Superman. Superman has vast hearing, yeah. but he's able to... One of the things he had to learn early on is how to filter all the noise out. Oh, he's like else. my dad. So, yeah. You can hear so me, but not when the sports the noise. And we, Exactly. He's <laughs> selectively hearing. listening. Selective hearing. <laughs> so, but, I, but I think with Sophie, I think it came, that connection was so deep that 
whenever she spoke. And, and again, when she's specifically going, good morning, BFG, that's to him. And, and that's, that's the way I took it. Um, and Just case, check in. No. And thank you for resolving. Selectivism. <laughs> Ish. Uh, what's the quote? Those who don't believe in magic are never destined to have it. True. That's yeah. a good quote. Don't all look. Don't look at me with that <laughs> magic spoiler eyes. I'm just when saying that's Brexited a, me. That's a dark quote right there. Look <laughs> at you, magic spoiler. No wonder you're across the studio. <laughs> if we had known this was what we were voting on earlier this morning, I would have. Okay. I would have changed my mind. <laughs> Ah, absolutely. All right. Um, well, let's let's talk about Spielberg. We've uh, we've mentioned him here and there, but let's let's really dive deep into it. Um, he himself is a fan of of, of Dahl. He's grown up, as he says, with grim fairy tales. Um, and, and you had mentioned earlier that he liked that dark darker tone of things. Um, which, ironically, again, like I remember the books being darker. Like I, I think he actually took out. A lot of the dark stuff for the movie. I don't know. You're saying that earlier. I don't know Did whether he's done that or whether we're just older or times have changed and so we're a bit more resistant to it. Like, I think it's a number of factors that this now feels a little bit innocent compared to perhaps like other films that. Yeah. I mean, I, I can understand that, but you do have to remember this is also Disney too. So, and then I think Disney definitely has their hand in what what is acceptable for kids. And because they do, there are a lot of Disney films that were adapted from darker stories and they've made it lighter. And I think they probably did it with this. If they went with another studio, maybe I don't want to point out names or like Paramount or WB or whatnot, I think it could have been darker, but still catered for the kids. But Disney's so great at making a good dark story light. Yeah. I mean, for, well, when you, you, you say that, but then. All I, you know, I, I think about the Jungle Book, and, and and I've said this before. The last twenty minutes of the Jungle Book are like some of the most edge of my seat, and very intense and very dark. You know, you know moments. And that was a Disney film, and what they paid to get a PG as opposed to a PG thirteen, I, I have no idea. I forget what this was rated, but it's it could be PG. PG. And again, like the darkness, uh, to be a little bit pessimistic. We're living in such politically correct times that if you make something too dark that that is going to be geared towards kids, it's, you know, then then you get a backlash that you don't necessarily need. You know, for me, the big giants were the darkness of this story. I understand the kidnapping and such. But we never saw... She mentioned, you know, in terms of the BFG, he, he talked about them stealing kids. We never saw right. that. And, and in terms of Sophie, she talked about being beaten, but we never saw that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was a tell, don't show. Right, but there's always, like, look, Snow White's dark. Cinderella is dark. The Lion King is super dark. It's Hamlet. Like, all of these films are super dark with nasty baddies, horrible things that happens, often parental loss. Like, there, there are really dark themes throughout that. Um, and I, I, I think they did quite well, really, to leave some of those scarier names of the giants in. You know, they're like Flesh Eater and Blood Boiler. <laughs> or, you know, like, they're, they're pretty fierce imagery there. Right. Yeah, I think one I of the agree. darkest moments was probably the whole um, eating 
moment where, where she was having the nightmare that was produced right. and she got gobbled up by by the giant. That I mean, there so there were some moments that got yeah. dark a little bit, but obviously it didn't last too long. Yeah. And Spielberg, though, too, you know, since you're talking about Spielberg, Spielberg has always, 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 um, whether he's whether he made Jaws. Uh, close Encounters, Close Encounters for for a kid. He put the little boy Barry into such peril, being kidnapped by by aliens in that movie. But he always has the way of fine balance. In a, even in a movie like Jaws, which can be very terrifying, he, he lets things breathe and he lets the characters be characters. And sometimes there's even humor amongst horror. And that's one thing he was able to always do uh, especially in those early films. And you can even look at a movies that he's produced, uh, movies such as Poltergeist, uh, movies such as Gremlins. You know, he really makes, a f- like in Poltergeist, that family is a very nuclear family. You love and care for the family because they're real people. And he's always able to get that even in his fantasy-type movies. Because other than that, you're not going to be drawn into... You're not going to be as scared as the family on screen could be scared or whatever adventures they have. So bringing him in and doing BFG, that's one of the brilliant things he's able to do is make that balance. Yes, there's darkness in this world. Family themes for Spielberg in this kind of a movie, it's just one of his tropes. He he comes from... You know, uh, somewhat of a, a, a broken family himself. And when you look at things like E.T., where he models himself after Elliot in ways, and you look at Close Encounters, he he has that, you know, Sophie is that outcropping. He, he and It's one way that he relates. But as dark as that is, he can put them through this fantastical journey, and they'll come out okay in the end. Yeah, I don't think you're going to be traumatised as a small child to watch the BFG, you know, even though there's all these, you know, there's a bit of wonderment in these crazy kind of names and bits and bobs. Incidentally, you just reminded me, um, I think it was Julie Harris's seventh or eighth birthday party when we were all seven or eight, her parents sat us all down to watch Poltergeist. (laughs) <laughs> there you go that's what we did didn't sleep for a week why would you you know but when you again just look at the history of his films and they all have a little bit of darkness in it things happen to children that aren't necessarily nice and dark poltergeist the, the perfect. Carol it's Lamb. a perfect children's yeah. birthday party of movie. Absolutely. I think we should put that on the new poster there's a clown in it <laughs> so uh, Again, he's able to he he's just able to do that very fine balance where a lot of people can't do it. But he his mastery to me and his storytelling is not only the way he moves his camera, but it is his crew. It's the way a scene can be lit. It's the way that he can edit something to put together. Again, when you look at I'll take a, a, a thing from Jaws, one of the most tender you would think, what tender moment is there in Jaws? Well. When Chief Brody is with his son, and he's he's drunk, and and the son starts mimic him, mimic, mimicking, mimicking uh, him. yeah him at the table, and he's like, "Come over and give your." When it's done, he's like, "Give your father a hug." And he's like, "Why?" He goes, "Cause he needs it." 
It's a very tender scene in which is a, what is a very gripping movie, but Spielberg is able to do that balance very well. And he does it here in BFG because she finds parents who are loving and caring. Her dream comes true, even though she was set in this world that can be very horrifying. Well, I think we, we talk about this a lot, you know, a movie made out of passion. I mean, this, this movie was made from a passion it shows on screen, right? And to your point, that it goes also beyond that. There's a passion for wanting to work with Steven Spielberg, Bill Hader... Um, what's his character's name? One of the uh, one guys. of the big giants. <laughs> yeah, uh, blood gobbler. Blood yes. gobbler. Yes. Uh, you know, he said it was a joy to watch Spielberg. He makes things that look yeah. very simple, and you can imagine. I mean, obviously, he's got his tricks and things like that. But we've also been mentioning that in this alone, he's challenged himself to new heights. So it's he doesn't just pull out the same you know tricks from his bag. But he is able to make it look simple. And, and the fact that he has a passion for the story and then pa- people have a passion for wanting to work with him, I think you get a result like this. Yeah, that, that's why I can't wait for Ready Player One. Again, it's it fits into his tropes about a boy who lives in essentially what's a trailer park, who comes from a you know dysfunctional family, who ends up on this amazing adventure within video games. I can't wait. Another thing that I loved about this movie, and I, I have to bring it up because every time I see her name, uh, I always have to give her props because I got to work with her as costume designer Joanna Johnston. Um, this is one of the most classiest, beautiful women, and I had the privilege of working with her. If you've watched this show, you know that I worked on the movie Contact where she was the, the, the costume designer. And I'd never had any experience with costuming and whatnot. And this woman from your home country she's just a joy to work with every day and she's worked with Spielberg before along with other greats like Robert Zemeckis and such but she brings to this they actually like she they didn't just rely on artistry to do the costumes she they had seven foot maquettes in which she costumed each of the maquettes to give to the animators the computer guys and that to me is amazing detail that you're going to you're going to bring somebody in to actually make costumes to say okay this is what we want this to look like it adds to that realism Mm -hmm. and what you did even even bfg's doctor's bag for his dreams you know it's fantastic and i think just it was almost a character in itself that bag it was so (laughs) pivotal it was i I feel like it was almost like mary poppins-esque in its kind of <laughs> That's a great, yeah. such a such an important part of the movie that the bag and then when it's wheeled through and you get that difference in scale at the right. end, yeah. I mean it's yeah. so pivotal. I, I mean Rebecca Hall said like her Joanna's costumes helped enormously. She's truly one of the most detailed, brilliant costume designers I've ever worked with. She has such precision, everything down to the slip I was wearing. Yeah. And this I can say for sure. She is so detailed and brilliant. And again, her costumes don't like leap off screen like you're noticing them but they're so fleshed out and wonderful that she she needs an academy award and she just has happens to be one of the sweetest people that i've ever had the the pleasure of working with oh thanks a lot this is just gen- <laughs> gently like that what's wrong with us why aren't we the nicest people i just met with? you and look at you already <laughs> <laughs> no you're dead to me <laughs> Um, I'm dead to a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, you know, one of the things that Marissa has been pointing out is the lighting, right? And um, the cinematographer, Janusz Kaminski, he has been applauded for his use of lighting. You know, we've talked about these various things in the past, but 
I, I, I mean, you know, it's one thing because when you just watch it, right? Um, I'm not a cinematographer, so it's very tough for me to figure out the behind the scenes of how they're actually able to pull it off. But when you kind of know and, and work in that on a day to day basis, like everyone just compliments him to such a high level. Um, Look at the different things he's had to light, though. He's had to light this kind of spooky cave and, and really get that right to that dreamland where where it's got to be that, you know, just, just to get the light right on that. It's just phenomenal. Like, yeah. you know, it really creates the atmosphere, doesn't it, of that, that cave of it being hidden but safe but... You know, it's it's a very precise place. Yeah, exactly. I, I like that um, at first it seemed like an ominous cave and whatnot. Right. But then when you actually see the pretty color, you're like, oh, this is a welcoming environment. This is his home, um, a place of safety and security and, and whatnot. And then also just the country, the giant country itself, had a lot of different looks to it mm. because it started off, you know, grand and gorgeous and sunny and whatnot. But then when the big giants were there and they were playing with the cars and tossing the BFG around, it was stormy <laughs> and whatnot, yeah. which gave a really threatening, menacing t- type of feel. Yeah. But then at the end, when they got the trolls, or trolls, the, the giants out, it was happy again. Right. And so, like, even the environment they were living in had different tones. Yeah, I mean, this is a partnership that I believe began with Schindler's List. Uh, between him, it was right after uh, Jurassic Park, where, where Spielberg was doing double duty. He was he was filming uh, Schindler's, going back looking at dailies in Jurassic Park. But I believe the relationship began with Schindler's List. And if you look at Yanusis, who I believe is married to uh, Holly Hunter, I believe that's just you know right. gobbledygook. You know, <laughs> th- there we go. Um, his when you look at his films, particularly Spielberg films, he he too has a trope. Like he uses light, light coming in through a window. Um, it's usually extra bright, um, highly sharp and focused with some semblance of dust. Whether he's doing Schindler's List, Private Ryan, Private Ryan, the the opening, uh, the staccato feel of that opening, that the storming of Normandy. When you look at what he was able to accomplish there, but then he'll do Lost World. Uh, and again, you look at his lighting, it's very similar throughout, even up to Munich, to Lincoln. Um, he, he lights things in a very different way, and he photographs things. It's, it's, it's above and beyond just lighting. It's the way he photographs a room, whether it's bright, whether it's dark. Um, he, sees, uh, he sees light. Uh, it's being quoted by uh, Jill Terry, who did a lot of the special effects. Uh, you know, he says, Yunus is someone who sees light in a way that is unlike anybody I've ever encountered and in a way that I certainly, he himself doesn't even fully understand. Uh, our conversations as to what to bring to the movie are on levels that allow him to see darkness and then to see its relationship to the light. And, and again, just seeing his, his progression as a cinematographer. And right now, like, I, I don't think he and Spielberg have parted ever since Schindler's List. So if you want to go back and do a little Spielberg marathon of his movies uh, that, that he did, you will see that pattern that he has. And it's gotten to a point that I think that each one knows exactly what they're looking for. Much like Spielberg's relationship with John Williams. It's like, we don't even have to talk. I know you know exactly what I'm going to line. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to music. But one, one more thing of the lighting. I think I noticed it at the beginning with the, the usage of all the shadows. 
I right. thought that was really well done, especially for Sophie. Every time she went to the window, like you can see her shadow, like kind of slowly building, and mm-hmm. then even the BFGs, um, his shadow across the building, so it gave it a more menacing, bigger presence than what he su- really was. Yeah, it must be super challenging to have a scene that's it's three in the morning, it's the middle of the night, but you still got to create shadows and create this. And then he was letting quite a lot of light through the windows, and I was like. I, it feels like because I get up at like if I get up at one or two in the morning, I bump into things and haven't got a clue where. And like it's pitch black, so you do have to let an almost an unnatural amount of light sort of into that scenario that's not quite real, and it still feel like nighttime. And that I thought that was yeah. quite expertly done. Well, and think about the the opening. Think of, think about when BFG grabs right, Sophie. Yeah. You know, the moonlight coming into the, the way that that was lit. And then you look at the way the BFG's abode, his house, his, his cave is done. And the way that items were revealed to us as to, oh my god, this is the ship. It looks like it came right from the Goonies. Or, the, like, all the, like, it was just the way in which, whether he was on a practical set, but then you have to, whatever he films practically, they have to apply the same measure when they have to do something digitally. So, yeah, he's come such a long way uh, in, in a career that, uh, yeah, I find them now to be un- inseparable. That he'll probably do every other, you know, he's done so many, I don't see him going away. Anytime I mean, I mean the, the whole list, every, everyone top, top crew is pretty much everyone that Spielberg's worked like, Okay, so Absolutely. you mentioned Joel and Terry. They, they worked on since, uh, you know, Jurassic Park. Um, and you know, speaking of that, he says uh, we wanted we wanted to allow Steven to be able to work as Steven to utilize all the elements that he brings to the process: his creative team, live action sets, lighting, and costumes, while simultaneously creating a virtual world. For much of the film, Sophie is a little girl in this land of fantasy, which is inhibited by giants. But we gave Steven the ability to shoot the movie as if the whole thing was live action, so as to bridge the gap between the virtual world and the digital worlds. Yeah, you know, so. Again, even in that regard, like, you, you right. get it, you know? And so, to your point, they don't have to talk in that way. Like, Joe understands what the vision is and Absolutely. how Stephen likes to work. And so it's, okay, let's make a solution that works around Stephen yeah. rather than whatever the case may be. Right. Um, Michael Kahn. Another person. And, yep. He's worked with him forever, too. Which, by the way, Michael Kahn, one of the few editors that I still know that actually edits actual film. Yeah. And finds it faster. He admits uh-huh. that he finds it faster, which is fascinating to yeah. me. It really is. Um, how? I don't know. But yep. It has a language all its own. It is. You know, and, and Michael Kahn, uh, he's a very, from an editor perspective, it, it's always interesting to learn how he edits because he very much cuts on emotion. He does not care about continuity. And, you know, ultimately as an editor, you shouldn't really care about continuity, and which is why everyone's so easy to and quick to point out continuity new errors. But when you can get the feeling of it down, that's mm-hmm. what really makes it tick. And that, yeah. obviously that's something that him and Spielberg have been able to capture. Yeah. And an editor can make a director look really good. You know, I mean, in, in speaking of Spielberg, I mean, it, it's it's been said... Openly, that had it not been for editor Verna Fields, who was editing Jaws out of her garage, like Jaws, like Steve, Steven Spielberg's career probably would not have taken off at all had it not been for Verna Fields and her editing capabilities and putting together that movie. 
it, it it just seems we've had John Ottman here who also said the same thing about film. And it's very interesting. One of the things that he said in that interview was that we're, it's, it's so amazing that you can tell the editors who have never cut film before. Because it's just a completely different mindset. And he goes, and if I were to teach, he said something to the effect of, I would make sure that if you wanted to be an editor, you learn how to cut on film first. And, you know, you, you're saying Michael Kahn thinks it's quicker. After hearing that interview, going through that and hearing that, you go, well, yeah, that makes sense. That's what they're used to doing. Well, in a, in a way, it, it, uh, you kind of pre-select what you're going to put down um, versus if you have if, if you have in the back of your mind the notion that I have infinite number of possibilities then it's going to take you an infinite amount of time to figure out what the one possibility that you actually want to put together is yeah yeah I mean I think the the story is obviously very simple to follow um, I think the for the editing and timing wise I mean we mentioned at the top of the show it was very long and there were some scenes that it felt dragged on maybe one or two minutes too long mm-hmm. and and there was several times but I, I think you know the the whole trashing of BFG's house went on a little long the whole you know dream chasing went on long the whole dinner scene at the you know, was it actually morning breakfast at the palace went on too long um, they, I think they could have trimmed down each scene and it would have been still, we still would have gotten the jokes and had the same, you know, feel and pace of the whole yeah. film. And I, yeah, and I'm, I'm not, you know, I won't, I, the movie did feel long to me. One of the things that I thought while driving home after watching the movie, though, is are we, because this is a movie that could have been released in the 80s or 90s, okay? Have we become so conditioned as an audience to where we want scenes shorter, our attention spans. You, you said it before. Kids' attention spans these days are much shorter. So does it feel long? Because like, is Spielberg making a movie that this is the type of movie that he always used to make? I mean, again, I'm not comparing. E.T.'s a, a much better movie, but E.T. runs a good couple plus, uh, you know, good couple of hours plus. Doesn't feel long. You know, uh, all of his movies are, you know, the Saving Private Ryan's, the Lincoln's are long movies, but even his Hook is a long movie. Close Encounters, like, they do top two hours, but I never feel like but you gotta look at the scene this is is, um, scenes within scenes, but the problem, like, you know, you don't leave that location for a long period of time. Right. Whereas in those other movies that you're mentioning, like, it's quick. You're going from one place, you know, the guys with the keys, to Elliot, to this, yeah, to this. There, there's more sure. physical action that draws the audience in. I think also, maybe this is just me, but I felt there were some moments where, like, the momentum was broken. Mm-hmm. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Because even right after the palace and, you know, the whole army is going to the country. Right. In the big... I, giant country now you're like okay we're gonna take these guys out but then literally we have all the helicopters go in and then it cuts to a five minute dialogue yeah that was frustrating as anything i'm like what's happening i was like let's take out these trolls while you're while we're still in the motion and you know and then they cut to a scene where they're just sitting and watching the giants sleep i'm like okay well i think the book and the story is actually relatively simple so they like built up parts of it to make it into a 
a film, but at some points it probably didn't need to be built up as much as they did. Mm. And I felt like there were moments where, and I always say this, like, I hate when I'm thinking about what time is it. And that's when I know mm-hmm. that a movie is not moving at the right pace, because I rarely do it, but in this movie that happened a few times. Like, what time is it? And then it moved on and it was great, but there were those moments. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was the probably the moment I was like, something was happening, and I yeah. was really ready to take out these giants. But then it cuts to a nice. It was a sweet dialogue scene, but right. it went on it, like it yeah, completely you're like, broke. Yeah, thinking what's happening with helicopters right yeah. now? What are they yeah. doing? Like, like, it completely yeah. broke it yeah. just yeah. for a shot of the giants sleeping. Yeah, yeah. like it, it wasn't worth it. No, I, I agree. Yeah, um, absolutely. So let's let's also talk about John Williams. Obviously, uh, legend. Absolutely. So much so that um, Ennio Marconi, he also applauded John Williams at the Oscars mm-hmm. in his speech, which I thought was, you know, it's always great. Like, I mean, Ennio himself is a legend to to, sure. to be able to do that, you know, and give respect to John Williams. I thought I thought was a really sweet moment at the Oscars. Um, truthfully, I don't remember much of the score on this one. I, you know, it's certainly not E.T. esque no. or Jaws esque. This, you know, it's interesting. I was, uh, this is, for me, this was perhaps one of John Williams. It's a somewhat unremarkable score for him. Um, Shocked everybody. But I was listening to the soundtrack on my way up, and it's on its own, it's beautiful to listen to if you just want to, like, chill. Like, there's, it's, it's a beautiful orchestral piece of music. Um, but to me, it was so subtle in this movie. Um, and while the movie has an overture, the one thing that it was lacking to me was a theme. Like, there was no theme in this movie where that was either dedicated to Sophie or even to the BFG. When you look at great John Williams score, whether it's from Schindler's List... Uh, whether it's from Jaws or whether it's for a Star Wars movie or Close Encounters of the Third Kind, there's something that you can equate something to a character, to a scene. And this one, to me, as I was listening to it, he was pulling from other movies. I, I heard a little Jurassic Park piano. I heard some moments of Superman. I heard from various other movies that I've enjoyed and they were just done a, a little bit, a lot of Harry Potter, mm. which I wasn't overly surprised, but the, and all he did was change either the way the notes or the cadence in which they were done. It's very, very subtle. There was nothing, it never, other than just being a bed to me uh, and someone who pays attention to soundtracks, this one to me was just, it didn't add much more to the movie. What I will say is that I appreciated that it could be subtle because I remember Bridge of Spies, which I believe is another movie he did. Um, it's a much more dramatic uh, soundtrack, and this felt calmer. And I'm always impressed with someone who can really read what a film needs. And obviously, John Williams is someone who can do that. And this movie, I didn't feel like needed like a big dramatic soundtrack. It it worked for me. And but it needed a theme. Like when you look at ET, when you That's listen fair. to ET, mm. when you listen to all Indiana Jones, even if it's a smaller movie, uh, like an Amistad, so to speak, so to say, there's something that you take away that you go. Oh, okay. That's that. That's Sophie's theme, or that's the BFG's theme. Um, 
there was always something that he was able to accomplish. And in this one, I just thought that that it was missing that John Williams magic that I thought could have lent a lot more. Maybe could have helped with pacing at certain times. I don't know. It just wasn't. It has all the tropes. It has the piano, the oboe. It has the cello, the deep, full orchestra. And I say you listen to that soundtrack on its own. It's beautiful piece of music as a soundtrack to a steven spielberg movie that we're accustomed to it was just a little unremarkable i agree for me i would agree anyone else have anything out about the score i think the music was great i don't think it was unremarkable i i i think it would i think the moment i noticed it really the most was um during the whole dream tree sequence because when she's running around it's it's visually stunning but all you do really feel is the music and you hear it um reflecting the move the motions um but i i liked it because there i feel john williams music and all the spielberg's films always helps with the transitional moments of the film mm-hmm. and and in your point like bridge of spies john that was one of the few that john williams didn't, didn't compose for him, but even with a minority report, or, or like he, he, like I said, my only thing was he didn't have that common theme where I can just go, Oh, it's BFG. Mm. I, I know BFG. Like most of his music, I can go, Oh, that's from Private Ryan, or that's from 1941, or that's definitely Superman. Um, there, there's, there's a, there's just that thread that I was hoping for. Like I said, beautiful. Listen to the soundtrack on its own if you just want to chill. It's beautiful piece of music. So, um, you know. So let's get into promotion and, and we'll talk box office numbers and reception. Uh, you know, I remember a lot of promotion around this, but um, it took me a bit. You know, in, in terms of the way they marketed, I never got a sense of the story. And obviously, the story is very simple. But I was like, wait, what is the BFG about? I wonder whether they just assumed that everybody has read the book. And, like, the second I saw there was a BFG movie, I was like, I'll watch that. And and I was like, there he is. And, there, and I was so excited to just see him in vision on the big screen. And and for that that vision to have been sort of realised in, in, in movie terms. That re- I don't know if I needed that personally. Like, I would have seen... Somebody could have gone, um, written it on a scrap of paper and gone, yeah, I'll see that. <laughs> I didn't even need a trailer. I'll go. Am I the only person here who hasn't read the book? No, I haven't read the book either. Read the book. But for promotion, I mean, I was at the 2015 D23, and this was actually one of the few Disney movies that they briefly talked about. Um, they did mention it was coming out. Steven Spielberg was directing it and whatnot, but they hardly talked about it. It was mm-hmm. one of the films. The other films that they promoted, they talked about in depth from thirty to forty-five minutes. This one was probably maybe ten. So they, even for that, the audience didn't really get a sense of what the film was. was just the concept was D twenty-three last August, right? August two thousand fifteen. Yeah. Okay, so they may have not had a ton of footage ready from from this as no, well. No, and they didn't. And there's actually another Disney film coming out in, I believe, next year or two thousand eighteen that also deals with the giants so and that's that film was what they were more promoting than bfg yeah i gotta so i felt that the marketing on this i didn't think it was i thought it was sort of kind of very low-key for me they ticked the box going yeah we've we've ticked all the boxes but i don't know i didn't feel like i didn't know i did not feel that that spielberg got his due like you know this wasn't a 
it almost seems like if it's not a Captain America movie or a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie or their own Pixar or animated, eh, I, I didn't think that this movie got its great due in the marketing push that they usually put like, towards something. I sort of kind of felt like your D23 experience. I sort of felt I knew the Jungle Book. Well, here's, so, so the, you know, I, I found this. I didn't actually see it beforehand, but apparently a ch- children's promotional leaflet um, for the movie suggests whenever, um, whenever any of your members um, have a dream, encourage him or her to write it down, put it in a dream jar. Then at the end of the month, everyone reads their dream to the whole family. Oh, so, God, right. that sounds hideous. <laughs> what? There's nothing worse, is there, than someone explaining wait, wait. their dreams to you. Just Imagine, like, a month's worth of dreams. I'm like, please stop talking. You know, you have so oh. you know, I was going along the side that it was actually a magical moment as a family you get to share it. <laughs> But apparently the Brits disagree. <laughs> I was, I was really say- want to hear? Do you want to hear about the dream I had last night? This is dumb. The but, other day, yeah, I dreamt that. that I had a drawer full of plastic forks. Do you want me to add that? No, no I'm and kidding. Thirty other dreams <laughs> to a jar, and then tell you what. Yeah, but, but but again, I, I think it speaks. What, what I'm saying is that something like that speaks to the spirit of what this movie is about. Is about bringing a family together. And it didn't, again, the way the, this movie as a whole captures magic and imagination, the the marketing was very much uninspired and unmagical. Right? It was. It, was. It, it really was. Even 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 the trailers, I mean, to me, what was grabbing me towards it, it, was, it was Steven Spielberg and him going back to this kind of ETS or family-rooted type of a film and that it was going to be magical. But in the end, I never got that sense from a lot of the trailers or the, the the posters. Like, and there just was there did not seem to be that summer push. We be, being that this was a movie that was supposed to be released during the Independence Day weekend, and I just didn't feel like it was. It wasn't. Again, there's something you said about advertising that knocks you over the head, and you're like tired of it. But I didn't even get to the point where I was tired of it. It was more of the point, when's this coming out? Like, what's this I, about? I agree. I was a bit like, I know it's coming out sometime, but I don't know when. I mean, and then they lobbed it out against Finding Dory. And Ellen DeGeneres, what a great chat show guest. And really, I mean, I love Mark Rylance and, and the young lady that's in it. Great. You can't put Mon Kimmel. You can't, you know, where, where are they going to go on, on any of those chat shows to go and promote their movie? Yeah. Uh, he's probably doing theatre. I can't see him on... Kelly and whoever is presenting that now, <laughs> like, like, where are they going to go on and talk about their movie? And actually, love Mark Rylance. Are you going to book him as a chat show guest as your great get for the night? He is and an Academy Award winner. It's I not know, like he right? doesn't have cachet. But so is Jeremy Renner. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. No, I just, it just, it was just one of those, it was a weird marketing thing to me that, geez, maybe... If this is the marketing you were going to put behind it, maybe you wouldn't want to release it during, like, the 4th of July weekend. Like, July 1st might not have been your best date if that's the marketing push you're going to be, you know, behind it. They were already on the wave of Finding Dory. So it's just like, did they take monies out of the marketing to put more into Dory? It's just one of those weird things because when you look at it's not a bad movie. 71% 71% on Rotten Tomatoes. They they had the goods. It's Steven Spielberg, for crying out loud. I, I kept thinking that this was more of a holiday movie yeah. to me like than Christmas, it was a summer. Like, yeah. 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 Christmas. Yeah. Family-oriented, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know if this is them just 
throwing out hyperbole or whatnot, but <laughs> Disney's uh, distributor chief, Hollis, said, um, we're going to be reliant in a lot of ways on international audiences. Um, so, you know, again... Oh, like looking this, at me again. Thanks a lot. Well, yeah. then, I think maybe maybe this film would do better in the UK or, or yeah. like over overseas, and not just because you're here. But I mean, I think it had a big following for America, but maybe it will actually do better in other countries. Yeah, it's possible. It's, it's just very dialogue heavy, and I don't. Here's, my worry is that apart from English speaking countries like Britain and, and other other ones. The the translation of the whoopee poppers like that loses meaning. You know, jokes mm-hmm. don't translate as well. It's true. I mean, and, and that and that is very true. And I said at the top of the show too, it was very British, which sometimes again, I don't misunderstand. It's not a slant towards you. Sometimes it doesn't translate. No, no, no. Here. Um, We're glad of that. I know yeah. it's not as like yeah. no. um, it's, it's a slant like, towards you. No, okay. yeah, it, um, it, it, but. That that could be, uh, like, I don't know if that was a hindrance, but I was actually surprised. I mean, it's the first time Spielberg is directed for Disney. It's getting the Amblin, oh, to me, too. I just got emotional seeing the Amblin logo <laughs> come up. I just love that. Um, it, it's DreamWorks coming back to Disney, you know, and him directing his very first feature for, for Disney. I just thought that they would have given him a little more TLC for this movie, which is supposed to be a family movie, and, and 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 since Disney claims we're all about, like we're all about making different kinds of movies for everybody, but when you're focusing on Star Wars, Marvel, Pixar, and whatever your animated movie is, like there's more promotion for Beauty and the Beast right now than I ever saw for the BFG. So that to me was sort of kind of a bummer like he should have gotten his due just because he is Spielberg and he, he look it may not be E.T. but it's still a good movie I think so. it's one of those movies I mean certainly I can see it playing much more strongly in the UK for sure. lots of reasons Roald Dahl is you know part of our DNA uh People my age who grew up on, on Roald Dahl have got children that are about the right age to go and see this, so it feels like a natural thing that they would want to pass on, whereas perhaps, you know, Finding Nemo, Finding Dory is like a more, um, you know, American-starred, American, uh, you know, a story and heritage kind of piece with, you know, Ellen DeGeneres is a big star here, t- you know, tucked away on a satellite channel in the UK, so... You know, like definitely the balance would tip for me that this would be a number one box office movie in the UK in the way that it wouldn't be if it's against Finding Dory here. I think it would be very hard for this to be a number one box office movie here, personally. But I, I also think it's one of those films that it is so timeless that it, you could watch it now or you could buy, you know, you know, buy it and watch it in five years, ten years, and it'd still be that kind of like long running classic that mm-hmm. you put your children in front of. And, and I mean, I, it should really be on the television around about the holidays time, and you'd watch it over and over and over, and it would be endlessly wonderful. Yeah, yeah I think you you two really did say something like if this movie were released around Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it does. Yeah. It has more of that Thanksgiving feel than it does during it, barbecue season. Well, I think find yeah. like to compare it to Finding Dory that we talked about last last week, it was like a um like Finding Dory is very summer. It's like water, it's all like what um, Americans think of as being classically summer where and like they're going to like a 
an aquarium. It's all like things yeah. you do in the summer, Beach. right? And where this felt a little, a little darker, a little like calmer, and it felt like a more holiday, Thanksgiving, Christmas, what have you, movie. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and I mean, thus far, you know, it's done thirty-one million. Um, it, it, it's it's foreign take thus far is about eight. Not not fantastic. I just don't um, know whether it's one you need to see on a big screen. If it comes down so. to it, like if you've got it, like it's lovely to watch on a big screen. If you're choosing between Finding Dory in 3D and the BFG, which you could be like, I'll watch that on television when it's and we will watch it and really enjoy it. And yeah. you could watch in your own home. Like, yeah, I do I think know. you could watch it in your own home and get a similar experience. I, want, I definitely I, think that this, you can definitely enjoy it on the big screen, especially for the moment when the BFG does take her and she's in the bag and you're riding around. That could it felt like a roller coaster ride or like a ride that you ride at Universal <laughs> City, you know? Um, like, I think that translates well on the big screen, rather yeah. if on a small screen, it wouldn't. Did yeah, you I see wouldn't, it in 3D? I, Sorry, I did yeah, not see it in 3D. I wouldn't have wanted my experience seeing this for the first time on my TV. I mean, seeing this in the theater with the detail, and especially after researching and seeing you know, the amount of work that they put into it, yes, this is a big screen movie, the way that Spielberg moves his camera, the way it's edited, that scene in particular. But even the scene in, in Buckingham Palace... Yeah. was fantastic and you get the grand scope yeah. of but it. you're not your average moviegoer. I'm talking about your average moviegoer like Don, Donna Don't and Donnie from uh, Tennessee who are just like what movie shall we watch or we could you know what I mean like you're not you've got an o- above average interest in well, going it got, to it got, it got an A- on cinema Never. score you I'm know. sorry yeah, it got an A- minus. on cinema score True. which is you know it's it's high. It's good. No, it means good word of mouth. And and um, 140 million dollar production budget on this movie, which is not too shabby considering some other bigger movies that mm. we've seen this summer. You know that that's sort of kind of. I mean, that's right in Disney's will. I mean, that's not like Spielberg broke the bank um, no. for this. You know, I can see in a sense though when you're juxtapositioning like a release schedule. Like it, it, I don't know what Disney has coming out. Uh, around Thanksgiving, but I think that they have they have the animated. Don't they have Moana coming out? Moana is coming. Yeah, out. and then and then they've got a, a Star Wars have, story coming out. But they in also December. have like Pete's Dragon coming out in August. That's coming out in August. There's a lot of Disney movies still <clears throat> yet to be released this year. Yeah, and it's going to be. But again, I, I've seen more push for Pete's Dragon mm-hmm. than I ever see. You know, like for a Steven Spielberg movie. You know, and it, it is, you know, I don't know the politics behind it, but I wonder if he was just like scratching his head going, yeah, it is harder for me to, you know, to get people to pay attention and make, you know, to release my movies. So, and he said this before, especially when he was creating Lincoln, which almost never saw the light of a solar screen. So it's just interesting that you would spend $140 million on a Steven Spielberg movie. It only did $18 million. For 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 that opening weekend, which a lot of people uh, they 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 they've already yeah. called it a bomb, yeah. you know, and it's going to be tough. Even at forty million worldwide thus far, it's going to be tough to recoup that. It is now the pound's falling. I mean, yeah. it, it maybe maybe it would have done before Brexit, <laughs> but now the pound is pretty much. Well, nothing. He's, I don't know how they're going to get it back if they're relying on us. Well, we got nothing. We've got any money left. 
<laughs> let's do let's do final thoughts and uh, wrap it up. Uh, you know, I I personally I, I don't get it. You know, I always bum out when we talk about great movies and we kind of finish it up out on the box office with low numbers. It really bums me out. I'm sorry. No, it, but but for the movie, you know, the, the, we talked about you know. Not eighty percent of this this podcast is about how great this movie is, yeah. and then we get to the numbers, and that's the bummer side of it. Because you know, I, I think people should go see it. I think they should want to go see it. And they should bring other people to see it. Well, I think it's yeah. nice that you care, and if there's something we can do to cheer you up, let us know. Maybe it go see the movie. <laughs> Whoa, yeah. that's it. Children's well, well, movie. You nearly you nearly BFG'd them. <laughs> Because it gets me. Well, you and know I do what think that, people you know should that, that, that was a BFG. That, that was, was a, a BFG. That was a big fucking gripe. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> you went right. there. That's right. So, Marissa, final thoughts. Well, how do I follow that? <laughs> um, overall, I thought this was a very sweet film. Yeah. And, I mean, Spielberg, he's great in and of himself. Disney's great in and of themselves. I And it's just really sad when numbers... It's like, we shouldn't dictate a movie being reflected on love numbers mm-hmm. I, and it's a fun film family oriented visually stunning and it's an easy story it's like it, I think it has a rewatchability factor if they put a little bit more love into this film I think more people would have loved it yeah I, I agree with you I thought it was a great family movie and a really overall enjoyable two hours um, I would say that it's also something that if your kids aren't familiar with the book this is a great way to get them started on this universe there's so many great ones out there so it's a fun thing and have them read the book if, if they're interested agreed um, when it comes to reading and such you know it, since since I already dropped one F-bomb the other F-bomb that I think that could have contributed to the lesser marketing is that this is not and here's the other F-word this is not franchisable like this is a this is a singular story which Hollywood hates today you know but Spielberg has been great you know, I mean, Spielberg was the... He started franchise, <laughs> you know, with Jaws. But when you look at some of his singular movies, and this is a singular movie. It has a beginning, a middle, an end. There's no need for there to be a sequel or, or a trilogy or a quadrilogy. No, but, it's the, a but the Giants come back. But the I don't know. I think Mr. Tips could get his own series. <laughs> I think he could... I don't know. He's kind of marooned on that island there. Yeah, <laughs> it's just... I just feel that... You know that could be another another thing. Like, well, how do we take this? We have so many franchises, and, and Disney is making their bones right now on franchises. Where if one movie like a BFG isn't going to do well, well, they got they got Finding Dory. They're going to have a Star Wars movie. They have more Pixar movies. They're going to have another Marvel movie to make up for whatever BFG is, but. You know, it, it it saddens me like it saddens you too, Phil, because this is a good, you know, since when is Steven Spielberg not have cachet or, or credence anymore in our world? And especially when it makes such a, it's a charming film. It runs a little long. Yes, for, for a children's film. Marissa, earlier, yes, you, great points regarding that scene with the helicopters. And I get it. But still... In a summer when you know when it, when it is about superheroes or the, to have a movie that has heart, these are the kind of movies that really they they made the summers. Like people would go to these movies in droves because of its charm and heart. And now people would rather have bigger superhero movies and fighting and, and whatnot. Well, not, even not so this, much. I mean, it's failing. A, it's failing. Yeah. So. so. 
Well, I mean, it's adorable, and you make that fantastic point of, of it being a, a way into the to the dull universe, and and absolutely everybody should have that in their in their lives. And I do think the BFG is just one of those stories that you should have heard in your life at least once, otherwise your life is just missing a piece of the pie. Um, <laughs> and they've done such a lovely job of telling it, and it looks beautiful. That it, yeah, I mean, it just is a a, a great way to spend two hours is it going to change your life other than it just being a nice thing no but it's not supposed to is it It just it does what it's supposed to do really well Mm -hmm. there you go all right well thank you guys for joining us yet again if this is your first time hopefully you rejoin us we have over 250 movies in our collection of anatomy so jesus 250 only that's it we've done quite a few Uh, we've got a lot of good stuff coming up Legend of Tarzan we've got coming up we've got uh, Secret Life of Pets next week Um, Sausage Party Mike and Dave wedding dates that's right Pete's Dragon Uh, we'll be talking Star Trek Beyond Rogue One so uh, definitely check us out in the meantime at DMovies1701 yeah please support me on, on Twitter say hello at Stephanie Wenger yep See you guys on Instagram. <laughs> at Serafini TV. That's right. And at Caroline Faraday with an A and then an A. That's right. <laughs> Thank you. That's right. We welcome her back even though she's British. Yeah. And, and wants she, to be separate. And she actually swam across the pond to get here today. That's Still right. divine. Good for her. <laughs> All right, guys. Follow us at the Popcorn Talk at Movie Anatomy. We'll see you guys next time for another Anatomy of a Movie. Bye, y'all. for listening and subscribing to the show. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email or tweet us. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been Anatomy of a Movie.